Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. We're halfway through the year and it's time to take stock. Central banks are approaching the end of the hiking cycle, the S&P 500 has entered a new bull market and bonds are paying more than 5%. I want to know where the opportunities lie and what risks lurk for the rest of 2023. And in today's dumb question of the week, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? All right, let's get into it. So, Robin, it seems kind of hard to say because it feels like we were just unwrapping our Christmas presents last week, but we're halfway through the year. Markets have kind of confounded people, I think. And we've had this weird thing where we've had a risk rally in stocks at the same time as we've had interest rates going up and various different panics along the way. Yeah, so let's just take a quick review of what's going on in markets so far this year. And the real standout, of course, is the NASDAQ index, the NASDAQ 100 which is up by around 36% as we make this recording. Yeah, sort of it's the best first half of the year ever for the Nasdaq 100. So that's a return of euphoria. And it's just a few stocks which are pulling it up so much. That's probably not going to be sustainable. That's just my guess, but we'll talk about that. And then we've got Japan. Again, a great story. We did a whole podcast about it. And that's up around 20 to 26%, depending on the index you look at. Whether you look at the good index, which is the topics, or the bad index, which is the Nikkei 225. And then the S&P is up around 13% because it's got less concentration in those stellar outperformers. Yeah, it's got to drag all the dead weight of material stocks along with it. The non-AI stocks, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or 495 <laughs> other stocks. <laughs> it's hard to make the case that you're drilling into ore seams is going to be helped by AI. Certainly not at the moment. And then even the DAX is up. So the DAX is up around 13%. That's the German stock market, right? Yeah, and the French stock market up 9 What about UK? Are we doing well? Well, you can probably guess we're not. The FTSE 100 is flat over the course of this year. And the FTSE 350 is down by around half a percent. But to be fair to the UK, this is a six-month-on-six-month comparison. And the UK actually did pretty well during that big sell-off in 2022 because of its techlessness. Can you call it that? Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> and its high dividendness. That's less good. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you look across equity styles, growth, large cap growth, has done incredibly well. So the Russell 1000 growth ETF is up by around 27%. And that's really what's driving the NASDAQ, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. And the things which did well in 2022 are lagging. So high dividends, low volatility, small caps, value, all of those styles of investing are doing badly. It seems like the decade we had before the pandemic, we've just got that story again, but compressed into six months. You could say this is kind of muscle memory where people are remembering what happened during the euphoria period after 2020 and then simply reliving those highs. It's kind of a nostalgia rally. Zuckerberg and Musk are really thinking about their muscle memory at the moment, aren't they? I see they're going to get in the ring, going to get in the octagon. My favourite <laughs> part of that was Elon Musk, he's quite self-deprecatory. So he said that his kind of stellar move is called the walrus. Yeah. Where basically he just lies on top of his opponent. Interesting to see if that works on Zuckerberg, because he won a Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournament the other week. Oh, he's ripped. And unfortunately, I think Elon Musk is going to die. 
Yeah, he's 52, I think, and Zuckerberg's in his 30s. It's like not going to be a fair fight, although I think Musk is quite a lot taller than Zuckerberg. We'll certainly be live streaming it, I guess, if this happens. That'll be our most popular live stream ever. It would be awesome. I would love that. I mean, just to go back to the markets, I saw you posted a graph from the FT on Twitter, which was really interesting. Yeah, and I made a video on the back of it as well, but I labelled the tweet yield parity. All that means, parity just means things are equal. But what's really interesting at the moment and very unusual is that the forward earnings yield, so that's the forecast profits for US companies over the next 12 months, divided by the price of the S&P, compared with US three-month treasuries and US investment-grade bonds, the yield on all of those is 5.3%. So they're all paying exactly the same amount of money? Well, kind of. I mean, the forward yield on stocks is kind of a meaningless measure. It's not really the same as the yield on bonds. Oh, you're just poo-pooing this graph. I love this graph. All the lines converge perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) But it is exciting to see that. And it does mean certain things. When the earnings yield is low, which it is, that means that stocks are expensive. So people are overpaying for future earnings. That's pretty clear for the US. Short-term interest rates, of course, are high because the Fed is meeting the falling earnings yield going the other way as it hikes. And there may be two more hikes ahead, according to Jerome Powell. It could even overshoot the earnings yield, which is even worse for US stocks. And then investment-grade corporate bonds have very low yields because the spreads people are being paid for taking that credit risk is almost, well, it's very low. It's very, very complacent, I'd say. Because when I look at it, I think, well, why would I buy stocks or investment grade corporate bonds when I could get risk-free three-month treasuries, which pay the same amount? Simple answer, you wouldn't. (laughs) It doesn't make much sense, I guess. It's an absolute no-brainer. I mean, you wouldn't buy corporate bonds of these kind of yields if you're going to earn a similar or higher amount for very low duration US treasuries. That would be kind of crazy. I mean, are we comparing the wrong durations here? Is the duration of the investment grade bonds longer? And therefore, if you compared it to the longer dated treasuries, they'd have a bit of a spread in? Yeah, what we're talking about here for US investment grade bonds, I actually looked at the spreads and the yields. You'd have to go to single A credit in order to match the 5.3%. So they were a bit creative, I think, with the graph. But hey, it looks good. Yeah. I mean, it does seem that investors in stocks are kind of ignoring all of these arguments for why they're overvalued right now. I mean, in fact, the S&P 500 is in a bull market, isn't it? It's rallied more than 20% since it's low in October last year. And I think a lot of that euphoria is misplaced and it's pretty much hype which is driving this rally. So we are in the middle of an earnings recession in the United States right now. Now, normally that would lead to a big sell-off. I guess you could argue that we've already had a big sell-off But still, if you look at the price relative to those forward earnings, it's just too high. And what we're going to have is three successive quarters of earnings falling year on year. And currently, the earnings decline forecast for Q2 of this year is minus 6.5%. That's nothing to be excited about. That's terrible. But that was the same, more or less, of what they predicted for the last quarter of earnings. And then it was only minus 2 or 3%, right? So maybe it won't be as bad as the analysts are expecting? I think it probably will be. The reason why is that I think this fall in margins, which many people thought would be happening soon, is actually happening now. And I think people in the US, their savings are being depleted and they can't afford to pay these high prices for services 
And that's going to ultimately force companies to reduce their prices. So competition's kind of return to the economy where companies are competing for fewer customers with less disposable income. And I guess the calculation for those companies is, well, we can't afford to keep prices this high because we're seeing sales falling. So we have to make our prices more competitive. I mean, the other thing that we've mentioned before about this rally in the S&P 500 is that it's really not equally spread between sectors. So year to date, information technology is up almost 40%, whereas utilities and energy are both down around 10%. It's a massive spread, if you want to think of it that way, between the sectors. It is really concentrated in those AI companies. I mean, I saw some research from Wisdom Tree, which said that if you exclude the expanded tech sector, as they call it, because we know that Amazon and whatever aren't actually in the IT sector, yeah. then the forward PE ratio for the rest of the S&P 500 is only just over 16 times, which is roughly in line with the 30-year median. So it doesn't look so crazy outside of those companies. But the problem is that these are market cap indices, and those companies have completely dominated the index. So you can't ignore them. You know, you can't really buy the S&P 490. I've seen a lot of people asking for that on Pension Graph. How can I buy the S&P without the top 10 stocks? I mean, the best you can probably do is an equal weighted index. Yeah, that's basically just tilting towards small caps. So what you could do maybe is just buy some of these levered short Tesla levered short. But yeah, I mean, you don't want to do that. I was going to say, when have you ever said what you could do is buy levered Tesla shorts? No, mathematically, I mean, that's what you could do, but I never would. Yeah, that would be a a road to much pain and uh, probably disaster. That would be taking techlessness to the extreme. And also what I think is kind of interesting is if you look at the fundamentals and you look at the fact set report, they often kind of drill into the data and give you some really interesting insights. So thank you, John Butters. He's the unsung hero of fact set. But what is interesting is that if you look at the sectors which are leading improvements in terms of profit growth, And this is based on expectations, right? So it's not hard data. That's supposed to be consumer discretionary, which typically you'd expect in a cyclical upswing when we're coming out of recession. Although, in fact, what the US is probably doing is going into one, or at least a period of weak growth. So that's kind of odd. And the sectors which are expected to have a year-on-year decline in earnings is led by energy, which is not that surprising, given that energy prices have fallen so much, but also materials and healthcare. And healthcare is usually a defensive sector. Seems like quite a lot of the market just doesn't tally with each other. We've got people rushing into money market funds and cash and being really defensive. At the same time as we've got this crazy euphoria rally, while interest rates have been rising. Like, I don't know how you sort of square all this together. (laughs) The only way I can see it is if you think markets are looking through this period of pain to a kind of huge upswing and sunless uplands ahead. What are you hearing on your conversations with people? How are they feeling about markets? Well, people don't believe in the rally. People are very cautious, the ones I speak to. So it's the usual kind of combination of people who've inherited money or sold a business and have a large amount to invest. Those people are getting very nervous about putting that money to work in the stock market. Understandably, I think, because earnings do look not really in line with where stock prices are. And if the US falls, of course, you could move to other regions, but the US is going to drag everyone down. Plus all the geopolitical stuff, you know, people are really worried about what's happening in China. So I'd say huge caution. 
And also lots of interest in buying bonds. You must be loving it. <laughs> I think it's great. Even in the FT, they were saying that uh, bonds are back in fashion. And a lot of the brokers are saying, look, we've had a lot of interest in buying gilts yeah. in the UK. So I think it's the same in the US. Lots of people are buying US treasuries. But of course, there it's really easy. Here you have to kind of, it's an unbelievably difficult thing to buy UK government debt, which is very odd given that the government probably wants to get funding from its citizens, why would you make it difficult? Yeah, it's like you have to cast a magic spell and start throwing stuff into a big cauldron and stirring it <laughs> if you want to buy a gill. Yeah, you still have to call up on some brokers. You know, you have to call the broker. Iggity, ziggity, zaggity, buy me a bond. <laughs> and then they just start reading numbers back at you. You're like, what are you talking about? So in terms of the next six months of the stock market, from what you've said, I'm guessing you're not convinced we're going to end the year higher than where we are now? Well, you know, there's often a summer lull when people kind of take their eye off the ball. They sit around in the garden drinking gin and tonics. Is that what people do? That's what we do. <laughs> but, you know, the credit spreads 4.3% in the US, 4.8% in Europe. This is high yield, so super tight credit spreads. VIX is at 13 12.9 on Friday, it's up to 14.6. Now we had a little sell-off, but still very low. So not much fear, really, not much volatility. Not much fear, not much volatility, just quiet. And I think this is a problem. Ultimately, I don't think this rally's got legs. But clearly enough people in the US do think it's got legs, that they're buying risky assets. And the ultimate euphoria gauge, of course, is cryptocurrency. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin is over 80% year-to-date. I think it's gone back to kind of being a leveraged version of the Nasdaq, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah, they're highly correlated. So I think a lot of that euphoria is really depending on things not turning bad. And it's possible that they could be right. You know, we could see no recession in the United States. We could see no credit problem in the United States, no pickup in defaults. We could see no escalation of the Ukraine war. But I think there are just so many things which could pop this bubble that it's just too risky, I think. If I had a large amount of capital to invest, I probably wouldn't. It feels like we've been saying there's these risks on the table for a while now, though. So we got through the banking crisis so far. We got through the debt ceiling debacle. We got through the Fed hiking cycle. There's been a lot of things that could have killed this rally that haven't. Yeah, I guess we've been saying that for a while. But I think what certainly wasn't true before was that valuations weren't beyond the five-year average for the price-to-earnings multiple for the S&P. So I think that's the big difference. If valuations kind of price that in, fine. If they don't, then what's the euphoria? Where is it coming from? And I think a lot of it is hype to do with AI. If you look at what strategists are saying in the US, at the moment they're forecasting the S&P 500 will finish the year around 6% below where we are right now. I mean, I don't think they have the information to be so specific as that, but certainly none of them are predicting the second half of the year to have a rally as strong as the first half of the year. Usually they're saying things like, oh, I think we'll just go back to a 30-year average forward PE, which would be around 17 times. And if you bake in a consensus earnings estimate for the S&P of around $233, a 17 times multiple will take you to just under 4,000 for the S&P. Yeah, so that's around an 8% fall for the S&P towards the end of the year. So that's where these numbers come from. And ultimately, a 8% fall in the stock market is barely worth commenting on almost, is it? It's just a normal movement over the course of six months. Yeah, so I think the kind of long-term average multiple is a better one to go for. 
And that's a 15 times multiple. I mean, we focused a lot on the US here for obvious reasons, you know, it's 60% of global markets, but that's not the only place to invest in stocks, is it? And I know that across the world, valuations by country differ a lot right now. Yeah, and I have some Indian clients, and some of them are quite bullish on India still. But the thing about Indian markets right now is that they're trading at a multiple of almost 21 times forward earnings. I think it's one of the only markets that's more expensive than the US. It's the only country I could find, yeah, which is more expensive. So I think the problem there is that they can't invest in anything else. Indian bonds are quite heavily taxed, whereas the stock market isn't. And I think for domestic investors, that's pretty much made a Tina market, you know, where there's no alternative to stocks. And then we've got the US, which is 19 times forward earnings, so second most expensive. And then you have to go a long way until you get to the third most, which is Japan at 14.7. And then it just falls off very sharply. France, 13. Emerging markets, 12. Of course, that includes China, which is 10.3. And then you go all the way down to the UK, that's 10.2. Italy's 8.2, always a problem. And of course, Turkey, 4.4. Turkey, 4.4. Since Erdogan got re-elected, I think people realise that their monetary policy is here to stay. So I just hope that he changes his mind. I think some people said that he had changed his mind. Yeah, he got a new central bank governor who... Disagrees with him. Said she was going to whack up interest rates, yeah. But it's interesting, the Turkish stock market last year was one of the only ones to post good returns. It was up massively, wasn't it? Even in dollar terms. Yeah, I had a momentum rally portfolio, which I was running, and Turkey came out on top again and again. But it turned around at Christmas, I think. But going back to the US, if you look at the premium that its valuation has relative to the world without the US, that's currently pretty close to its all-time high. It actually peaked at the beginning of 2022, and it has fallen since then, but it's creeping back up again now. So that's usually a recipe for a decade of underperformance in the United States when it's kind of euphorically priced above the rest of the world. Do you think this is going to push US investors to diversify more beyond the US market? Because I know that there is a strong domestic bias for US investors. A lot of them just hold the S&P 500 or just US stocks. Yeah, for them, the market is the US. And international stocks for them means non-US, which is kind of interesting. American exceptionalism, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. And you can see why. For them, why would you invest in the rest of the world? And the last decade seems to have proved them right. But I think people forget these decades in the past when things did go wrong, the 70s, the 2000s. And, you know, that could be a painful lesson for people to remember that. Presumably, if US investors who do have a lot of buying power start diversifying into what they call international stocks, that would sort of be a self-fulfilling prophecy for this trend, right? And it would boost international stocks and depress US prices. Yeah, usually what happens is during a period of very high returns in the US, people look abroad for more kind of attractive opportunities. And that's usually a signal for EM to rally. That hasn't really happened this time around because EM is largely China. And there are reasons why the US is not investing in China right now. Political reasons, of course. But certainly if the US did invest more in other countries, Japan would be a big beneficiary, I think. And maybe that's why we're seeing such a big rally there. And other large cap regions would benefit as well, including Europe, maybe even the UK. Oh, I think we're still a flyover market <laughs> at the moment. 
<laughs> like, because we understand the UK and we know the challenges we're facing. But I think for international investors or US investors, when they look at it, they probably just go, oh, what was, there was that Brexit thing wasn't there and they don't have any tech. Well, uh, what's the, uh, it's too difficult. Let's go and look at Japan, right? They do that. Only private equity seems to come in and start buying out our companies. All I can really think is they might look at things like yield, dividend yield, and there the UK looks really attractive. Or they could look at valuation. And again, you know, the UK is sandwiched between China and Italy and a much more palatable version of both those countries. So, you know, there are certain reasons why I can see they could invest in the UK. (laughs) I'm not making a very good (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of caveats. (laughs) I mean, just generally with stock markets, I think... I've been surprised, and a lot of people have been surprised at how well they've weathered the rising interest rates. Obviously, it crushed them in 2022, but they're bouncing back, despite interest rates not having fallen. But now everyone's focus seems to have turned to the housing market and the property market. And is that where the trouble is brewing? Well, certainly in some countries, we're seeing house prices fall very sharply. In the US, in certain regions, but also in Germany, for example, and in the UK, we are starting to see it. And that certainly will have an effect on the stock market as well, I think, via the kind of wealth effect, where people just feel less well off if they see the price of their house fall. And not just feel, they actually are, if their mortgage payments are going up significantly, they're going to have a lot less money to be potentially investing in stocks. So that's one effect. But the other effect is the kind of psychological one, where if you actually ask for a valuation of your house and you realise it's lower, then it'll make you less likely to spend. And that slows down the economy. So that's another transmission channel for monetary policy. But certainly for risk assets, I think it has a bearing on people's willingness to buy stocks. And one way to think of it also is if you think about people worried about their mortgage payments, they will be more likely to pay off their mortgage now than to invest in the stock market because it's financially more attractive to do so. And that's going to, at the margin, reduce the amount of money going into stocks. I mean, you say people are more willing to pay off their mortgages. I think that's definitely true when you've got a guaranteed return of effectively 5 or 6%. And like you say, that's also why we're seeing money flowing into gilts and other bonds now. And lots of questions about money market funds. Whoever would have thought that people would be excited about money market funds? But I get so many questions about, you know, is this money market fund giving the same yield as that one? And it's actually pretty difficult to work it out. It's not trivial. You have to kind of annualise the accumulation funds. But certainly, yes, now you're getting pretty good returns with these money market funds for very little risk. And presumably the returns will stay high as long as central banks don't start cutting interest rates. It's just linked to that, isn't it? Yeah, all of them will will return roughly the same amount and it'll be roughly the same as what the Bank of England's bank rate is or what the Federal Reserve's policy rate is, the Fed funds rate. And at the moment in the UK, that's gone up to 5%. And so these money market funds will very quickly pick up that higher income. And do you think it will be the case that inflation will fall below that interest rate? Because at the moment, you're still making a negative 3% or whatever in the UK on cash and short-term investments. But what I'm trying to say is, will high interest rates outlast high inflation? The thing is, what the central banks will do is look forward to monetary policy's effects And what will probably happen is they'll look at probably the second derivative of inflation and they'll look for disinflation. And at that point, they'll cut rates, which probably means that interest rates will come down faster than inflation does. So you're saying we'll never see real positive yield? I think ultimately the yields will be positive for money market funds, but small. 
So this is a pretty unusual situation we find ourselves in right now, where people are still willing to invest in negative real yielding assets because they're scared. But the nominal yield looks kind of attractive compared to the last decade, which I think is what's sucking people in. Yeah, it's kind of strange to me, isn't it? Because if I'm investing in those things, I would almost prefer the environment where inflation was 2% and I was getting 1% nominal return, I'm losing 1% a year, than the current environment where inflation is 8% and I'm getting 5% nominal return where I'm losing 3%. <laughs> the old way was better, no? Yeah, because it was kind of normal, whereas now things are far from normal and things are still in a state of misalignment economically. And we still haven't seen a resolution. I don't think that in the UK, they've really got around the problem of wages growing just too quickly to be consistent with inflation at 2%. There's just no way we're going to get back to 2% inflation with wage growth as high as it is now in the UK. Right now, wage growth is 7.2%. That's just far too high. And Andrew Bailey came out and said this after the latest fiasco from the Bank of England, which was, you know, they raised rates by 0.5%, but they don't even bother to have a press conference. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah, he tweeted about it afterwards, which I just think is absolutely atrocious. I also don't really get why they keep calling for wage restraint. It's not going to change anything. <laughs> People are not going to listen to Andrew Bailey and say, OK, I'm going to turn down a pay rise or not ask. All it does is upset people. It's just like clickbait for the Daily Mail. You know, I mean, it's, that's all it's going to achieve. Yeah, I don't know why he keeps saying it. I guess it kind of helps the government when they're trying to hold down public sector pay rises. Be like, well, the Bank of England's independent and they're saying we can't give you a pay rise. Maybe that's it. Andrew Bailey says you can't have a pay rise. But it's interesting though, isn't it? Is this the biggest challenge to markets and the rally in stocks? Is that inflation just stays high? Or is that just a UK specific problem now? Well, the US is in the same situation as us, which is very high nominal wage growth and services inflation, which is also high because of that. So I think in the US, it's pretty similar to the UK. They've got the same problem with core inflation, not moving and not responding to monetary policy. All the really interest rate sensitive sectors are falling, such as housing. But that core inflation number in the US is not coming down. You look at core PCE inflation. Ours is still accelerating up, so that's more of a problem. But theirs is just steady. So I don't think inflation's licked in any way. And that's generally what you're seeing across markets right now for different central banks. You're seeing a lot of them talking about increasing rates further when many people thought previously that they were kind of done. So I think that's most likely to knock stocks down. I think it's that assumption that we'd kind of finish with the rate hikes. And if we see further upside on those rates, then I think that's what's likely to end the rally. I did see that upstream prices are not such a problem. So if you look at the producer price inflation, input prices rose by only 0.5% over the last 12 months. So theoretically, that should start to feed into lower CPI. But again, it's really interesting what the Bank of England was saying about this, that many companies see the losses they had through the pandemic and due to high input costs. And what they're doing is actually delaying the fall in prices that they charge in order to recoup those losses. And inflation models just don't incorporate this. But certainly it's a positive. You know, I think ultimately that's going to reduce prices that companies charge. Maybe we will see prices start to fall in the shops as a result of that. Because ultimately CPI is a lagging indicator, isn't it? It's looking backwards at what's happened, whereas 
the producer price inflation has always been thought of as giving a hint as to where consumer prices are going. Yeah, so I think we are kind of turning the corner. It's just that really tight labour market and the problems with wage growth, which are still causing the lack of disinflation. And that's what's making central banks more hawkish. And that presumably could cause some more accidents at lenders and in credit markets, maybe. I hate to say this, but the UK banking system suffers from a lot of the same problems that we saw in the United States, which is lots of UK gilts, which have now fallen in value on a mark-to-market basis. And we still haven't seen bank runs in the UK. And yet the Bank of England hasn't raised the FSCS limit. And people still have lots of deposits which are above that limit. And I think that's a problem. I think we may see bank runs in the UK. Really? (laughs) Big call here. (laughs) Everyone go and pull your money from a bank immediately. (laughs) Is that what you're saying, Roman? (laughs) No. (laughs) You're going to make the news. You're front page of the FT. No, I I don't want to kind of cause the problem. But I think a lot of the recipe for what happened in the United States is applicable to the UK now. And the problem in the UK is that we have less banks. And so if there was one, if there was a bank run, it would have a bigger effect. And I guess there's also the problem of banks in the UK that a lot of people are going to come under mortgage pressure. Maybe there's going to be a pickup in defaults around mortgages or people at least looking to take a kind of payment holiday. Or maybe you'll get big house price falls and then the banks will be on the hook for that effectively. Yeah, yeah, because the collateral that they've got is worth less. And of course, that means a greater risk for them. And if a house does fall into arrears, they don't want the house. You know, they don't want to have the problem of selling the house, but they'll be forced to do that in a falling market. And so that's not going to be good for the housing market. It's not going to be good for the banks. It's not going to be good for their profitability. And I think that could be a problem. The Bank of England just doesn't really see any problems in the banking sector. So let's hope they're right. They're always right, aren't they? Great forecasters they are, (laughs) the Bank of England. Now, a lot of the things we were talking about, like credit spreads, volatility, the VIX index, all of those are available to monitor via our trackers on our website. So if you are interested in learning more about joining us on PensionCraft, then just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. Is the 60-40 portfolio dead? Now, before we ask if it's dead, Let's just clarify what it is. What's the 60 and what's the 40? 60 is stocks and 40 is bonds. And this is what people did by default if you were just building a diversified portfolio. I think it goes back to almost the 1960s, doesn't it? The idea, especially in the US, was that you would buy the broad US stock market and then a broad portfolio of US treasuries. Yeah, there'll be a combination of US debt. So that'll be mostly treasuries, but also lots of mortgage-backed securities and municipal bonds, which are very tax efficient. And so why was this the default portfolio? What was so attractive about a 60-40? The idea here is that instead of just putting everything into stocks, you have some kind of fallback to kind of smooth out the bumps, such that when there is a crash in equity markets, usually treasuries would rally to fill in the gap. And that way you get a smoother trajectory for your overall portfolio. So lower overall volatility. And that makes people more psychologically comfortable with their investments. Yeah, I read that in the decades where interest rates were falling, basically investors were able to get around 87% of the returns they would have got from just holding stocks, but with 45% lower volatility. 
So that seems a good trade-off, doesn't it? Yeah, risk-adjusted, it made sense. Now we find ourselves in an environment where interest rates are increasing or have increased by the most ever over the course of one year. And bonds are basically bleeding because people are looking at losses of around 30%. Depends on the duration of the fund you bought. I have a lot of conversations about people who've bought bond funds and are now in a situation where they're trying to decide whether to keep them. Yeah, because that was always what was needed to make 60-40 work, wasn't it? That bonds and stocks kind of diversified each other. They were negatively correlated. Stocks would go up, bonds would go down and vice versa. Whereas last year that broke down and everything fell and the 60-40 had one of its worst years on record. And now, obviously, all the questions are, is the 60-40 dead or is it still going to do its job? The thing about the correlation between bonds and stocks is it becomes positive when inflation is very high. The reason being that both bonds and stocks hate high inflation, very high inflation. So as inflation comes down, what I'd expect to happen would be that bonds and stocks would decorrelate. What we also see now is that bonds have a bigger yield cushion. If they're yielding around 4 5%, they've got a bigger cushion if stock markets fall, their yields can fall more, and that way they should bounce back more. And I think they're also more attractive on a fundamental basis. So if you buy a new bond today, a single bond, you can lock in that pretty high yield for some period of time. And I'm seeing more people do that. So they are maybe keeping the 60-40 idea, maybe not exactly in those proportions, but I think more people are now buying single bonds because you understand that more than you can with a bond portfolio, which is what a bond fund is. The thing I've always wondered with 60-40 is the 60 seems kind of self-explanatory. It's going to be some kind of passive diversified equity fund, whether that's just the US if you're a US investor or the world if you're a UK investor. But the 40 has always seemed more tricky to me. And I guess that's what you're getting at here. I get people who talk to me about bonds a lot and every single person says, what am I buying when I buy a bond fund? It's not clear to me. And it's true. It is difficult to understand. It's complex because you have all these different components, right? You have this income stream, which is very safe and government-backed, usually by developed markets, so that's rock solid and very low volatility. Layered on top of that, you've got a second effect, which is the mark-to-market change in the value of the bonds in the portfolio as the yield curve flops up and down. And that's very volatile, particularly if it's a long-duration fund. So this kind of Jekyll and Hyde personality of these bond funds confuses a lot of people. So the evil bit, Mr. Hyde, is the mark-to-market fluctuations in the value of the bond. You can have big falls, you can have big rises. This is what bankrupted SVB and all those banks in the US. Exactly. They had a nasty case of Mr. Hyde. (laughs) Good. But then you've also got the Dr. Jekyll, the nice guy, which is a steady stream of income payments that you receive if you own one of these government bond portfolios. And that's very low volatility. And that is what you receive if you hold one of these funds for a long period of time, 10, 20, 30 years. And effectively, you can ignore Mr. Hyde if you are going to be holding it for the long term. Well, that's good to know. But it still leaves the question of which bond fund am I going to hold? Like, What's the 60-40 based on? What's the duration of that 40? And what bonds are in the fund? Well, that you can always drill into. So for example, if you look at one of the fund's descriptions, you can actually see the individual bonds. But the two key numbers are what's the duration of the fund 
That'll tell you how long, on average, you've locked in a fixed interest rate. And that'll tell you how much Mr. Hyde you've got, the evil bit. The other thing to look at is the average coupon of the portfolio. So that'll tell you how much good guy, Dr. Jekyll, you've got in the fund. But is the basic idea that you're getting a diversified portfolio of long-duration bonds? Usually they'd be intermediate. So it would be the belly of the curve, 7 to 10 year. And usually people buy something like a Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index Tracker, which is a little bit of all the bonds in the developed markets, dominated by US Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, but also with some investment-grade credit thrown in. But what people are now doing, I think, is substituting individual bonds for some of the bond portfolio. And I'm having more conversations about building a bond ladder where you're building the 40 yourself. And there you can put as much duration as you want in there. And effectively, by buying a bond and holding it to maturity, that way it's all Dr. Jekyll and absolutely no Mr. Hyde. You can completely ignore him altogether. I mean, in terms of whether it's going to work as a strategy, this 60-40 going forward, Vanguard have published their 10-year outlook. And from what I can see here, their UK strategists think that a 60-40 portfolio is likely to return 6.6% over the next 10 years on an annual basis. And that's nominal. Which is only slightly less than 100% equity, which they see as returning 6.9%. And probably a lot better when you risk adjust it, if you look at the volatility of the portfolio. Yeah, so they actually estimate the median volatility as 11% for the 60-40 and 18% for the 100% stocks. So as always, you're comparing how well you sleep at night with how much return you get, and you get less sleepless nights per percentage point return for this portfolio, the 60-40. But it sounds like Vanguard, at least, think you're not going to get much more return for sacrificing your sleep over the next 10 years. Yeah, it won't be as good as it was, because you won't have that tailwind of falling yield year on year, which has happened for 30 years. We had 30 years of falling yields as we came out of the Volcker period. But it sounds like they're saying 60-40 is far from dead. It's maybe just about to have its second wind. Yeah, whenever there's one of these crashes in any portfolio, that usually scares people off. But of course, that produces the best opportunities. So for new people entering such a thing, which every year we are, because if we're drip feeding into our investments, then effectively we become a new investor for every pound that we invest then I think it makes a lot of sense to put money into this kind of approach, particularly if you're entering the last few years of your investment build-up period where you're accruing wealth and not far from retirement. At that point, you don't want to have lots of crashy assets in your portfolio. Yeah, and you just hope you don't get a 2022. Is there a reason why in your core portfolio you've gone for 100% equity rather than something like a 60-40? Yeah, because I've got a fair old time to go. And when I bought, the valuations were still not crazy. They were not bad at all. So I thought, you know, that would be a good period at which to drip feed into the market. And I drip fed for a two-year period, which was largely pointless because (laughs) on average, I'd have been better off just putting it in straight away. But for me, you know, I'm not willing to touch that money for a long time. And it's made my life so much simpler. I just wish I'd done it sooner. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. 
do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.